Amen. This morning, we will continue in our series in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through 33. Um, and this morning, really, Paul's going to be wrapping up a subject that we've been looking at for a couple weeks, even though maybe not as directly. Um, beginning in chapter 8, Paul began discussing this issue of food that had been sacrificed to idols. He starts talking about this problem that the Corinthians had, which was that in, uh, in Corinth, uh, most of the meat that could be bought could be bought from these temples where meat had been sacrificed to idols, and then they could buy them there. Um, and, and so Paul's been discussing, even though not as directly, we've kind of just been alluding to it, he's still been on this subject uh, of talking about how do they navigate this issue, because they had conflict. In it, they had people who were in favor of it. Thought, hey, yeah, we can eat meat sacrificed to idols. We have freedom in Christ. And then there were people who said, no, we can't eat meat sacrificed to idols either because they had done it previously in a religious way, or because they just felt convicted not to do it. Um, and so there was this conflict going on, and that's why they wrote to Paul, and and it's why Paul is now addressing this issue. But I wanted to give you some background um, for these last couple of weeks. Um, where we're at so far. So here are some things that Paul has established. And I gave you the references um, in the study guide and on the screen uh, to where we point to, to find these things. So first he establishes that an idol has no real existence, right? He says that an idol, it doesn't have any existence on its own, right? On its own, it's a piece of wood, it's a piece of metal, a piece of stone, whatever it's made of, it's just that. It doesn't have any real existence. It doesn't carry any spiritual power that it's not been imbued with by someone who worshipped it as an idol. And that, that's why if you, you, know, you find a, a carved piece of wood while you're walking on the trail, you find a little carving, uh, you don't need to know, is it, is, did this used to be an idol or not? It, doesn't, it can't be haunted or it can't carry any spiritual power on its own. You could take it back, give it to your kids, they can play with it. It's not going to be a problem for you. Now, if there is an object in your house that you do associate with it, worshiping it and worshiping it as an idol, then it does carry spiritual power, but that spiritual power is demonic because as Paul established, there is only one true God. And these other so-called gods are actually demons, is something that we looked at last week, that any spiritual power that isn't God's power is demonic and is also subordinate to the power of the one true God. He also talked about that those who are convicted, who are not convicted to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, have every right to eat it, right? They have every right. It's perfectly okay. They have freedom in Christ. They can eat these meat sacrificed to idols. But those who have a former association with idols and would fall back into sin if they were to eat it should not eat meat sacrificed to idols. Furthermore, that eating meat sacrificed to idols in a religious way does connect a person to demons, right? It does connect them to that demonic power if that's the manner in which they're eating it. And then he kind of concludes with this idea that we should not cause our weak brothers or sisters to stumble by eating meat sacrificed to idols in their presence, and that we should be willing to surrender any of our rights for the good of others. These are things that he's established as he discusses this topic. Now, it's kind of funny for us to be examining this because, um, I mean, now you know what to do about meat sacrificed to idols, right? But 
When are you going to use it? Right? There might be some situation, and if you were to travel somewhere where that's still practiced, and you might actually encounter this, where you're like going to a meat market, and they're like, hey, this is a sacrifice to this idol, and you would know now, hey, I have every freedom, because I never worshiped this idol, and I can just eat this meat, and if they say it's sacrifice to this idol, I don't care, it doesn't connect to me. But that's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. I don't think anyone, anyone here has had an opportunity to buy meat that's sacrificed to an idol. But these truths that Paul gives us as we examine this issue do help us to navigate a wide variety of issues, and specifically issues that we might call like, oh, this is a gray area. Or there are areas where some Christians, true Bible-believing Christians, do it, and some Bible-believing Christians don't do it. Those kind of issues, it does help us navigate a lot of those kind of situations. And so it is broadly applicable to a lot of other things in life, as we'll see today as Paul wraps up this topic. We'll look first at verses 23 through 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Okay, so Paul starts off by by repeating this line that he had already said back in in chapter 6, he said this idea of all things are lawful. And what he was doing there was quoting a, a popular Corinthian saying, right? A popular Corinthian saying of the day. Cor- Corinth was this very, uh, very vile, uh, sin-filled city. Um, and, and so this was kind of like their uh, a slogan that was used in Corinth of like, hey, all things are lawful. It's kind of their version of um, what's, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, okay? You know, and the same kinds of people would say it. You know, that kind of like bro of like, hey man, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You know what I mean? Right, that same guy would go, hey man, we're going to court this weekend. All things are lawful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Was that too easy for me to slip into? Okay. So in, in the previous uh, time he said, he said, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, right? And he repeats that here. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. It's interesting that Paul doesn't refute this statement, right? He doesn't refute it. He, he's comfortable with the statement, all things are lawful. Why? Because Paul is big on the freedom that we have in Christ. And if we truly embrace the freedom that we have in Christ, it's true that all things are lawful because the, the blood of Jesus fulfilled the law. We've been set free from the law because Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish the law, but he fulfilled the law. And since he fulfilled the law, there is nothing else that we have to do. Because Jesus has done everything, we don't have to do anything. There is nothing that we have to do. There is no sense in which we earn our righteousness. Our righteousness is is 100% granted to us by Jesus. That if you accept the forgiveness that he's made possible on the cross, he forgives your sin and he clothes you in his righteousness. His righteousness is what God sees when he looks at you. On that final judgment day, when you stand before the throne of judgment... God is not going to see you. He's going to see Jesus. He's going to see Jesus' righteousness over top of you. He's not looking at, well, let's see, how much did he give to charity? 
How much good did he do? Well, how much sin did he do? Let's try to weigh this out. No, it's not how it works. There is nothing you do to earn your righteousness. You're not capable of it. You're not capable of earning your righteousness. As good as you might think you are, as good as you try to be, as many good deeds as you've tried to do, as hard as you've tried to not do bad things, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything because it would fall short of the standard and you would be guilty and you would be sent to hell. You would be cast out of the presence of God. But because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and if we accept that forgiveness, he gives us his righteousness. He gives us the Holy Spirit inside of us. And we are now washed clean. We are covered in his righteousness. And that is what grants us access to the eternal life that we're destined for. So all things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. And this should be obvious, right? There's lots of things you could do that are legal. That just because they're legal doesn't mean you want to do them. It doesn't mean you'd want to do them, right? Like, I'm pretty sure, and I haven't checked, but I'm pretty sure it's legal for you to drink bleach, right? You can go home, pour yourself a big glass, go for it. Pretty sure it's legal. The cops can't do anything to, to you. But it would not be helpful, right? It would not be helpful. You would go to the ER, right? That would not be helpful for you. There's lots of things that we could do that we don't want to do because they're not helpful for us. And that is most of what God's law is, right? Most of God's law, even Old Testament law, that kind of stuff is simply God saying like, here's how I've designed you to live. Here's how it, your life will be best if you follow my law. You follow what I have asked of you, then, then your life will be better because you'll be living how I designed you to live. And so he tells them, hey, all, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And if we recognize the goodness of God's law, then we'll see that he has actually given us instructions on how we are to live that will be the most helpful for us, and we'll actually be in line with his will. The second half of it, he kind of pairs with not all, th all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Another way to say that would be not all things are constructive. And what he's talking about here is our interactions with other people, right? Just as not everything we could do is actually helpful for us individually, not all, everything that we do is for the good of the people around us, right? Not everything that we do might build up the people around us, might give them uh, be beneficial to them. A lot of the things that we do might tear people down, in fact, might hurt people. And so he's saying we should also consider how do our actions help others? Do our actions build others up or tear others down? We should, as he says at the end of this, in the next verse, let not, no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. It's a radically countercultural idea, and it's one that Paul repeats multiple times in his letters. We see it in Romans chapter 15, where he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul points specifically to Jesus when he gives them this command. He says, don't look out for your own good, look out for the good of others, just like Jesus did. 
right? When Jesus came for us, he was looking out for our good, not his own, right? No one would choose to give up the position that Jesus was in at the right hand of the Father to come to earth, take on a human body, and, and, and suffer the way that he did. No, he could have stayed, but he didn't. He chose to come for the good of us and to endure all the pain and suffering that he endured for us. Paul says again in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfishness, selfish ambition or, or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And if we, if we actually lived this way, people would take notice. But if Christians actually lived this way, if we actually did this, didn't look out for our own interests, but for the interests of others, to count others as more significant than yourself, which again, is a countercultural idea. Our culture does not live this way. Our culture says, look out for yourself, take care of yourself. Maybe your family is included in that, right? But look out for number one. Look out for you and your family and do everything you can to build yourselves up and not anybody else. And if anybody else gets in the way, knock them down. That's the culture that we live in. And he's telling us to live in a radically countercultural way, to not do things out of selfish ambition or conceit, but to count others as more significant than yourself. And if we actually live this way, people would take notice. We sang that song this morning. We sang that song this morning, uh, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And that comes straight out of Scripture, that um, that comes straight out of Scripture, right? That, that, we'll, that we're to know, Jesus said that people would know we're his disciples by the love that we have for one another. That as Christians love one another, their brothers and sisters in Christ, well, people would take notice and that's how they would know we are Christians. We sang that song, they'll know we are Christians by our love. But I would say that for the most part, that is, that is our ambition at this point, not what we are known for. We are far more known for our opinions, for our political positions, for our habits and our cultural uh, preferences, that is far more what we're known for than our love for one another. If we did love one another in this way, selflessly, people would take notice. If we loved each other first in the church and then the world around us in this way, people would take notice. We'll look next here at verses 25 through 30. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So Paul establishes that they can eat whatever is sold in the meat market without asking questions, right? He says that you're free from the ceremonial law regarding clean and unclean foods, right? That was firmly established in Acts chapter 10 when Peter 
is, uh, is just, you know, the church is starting out and he's up on this rooftop and he's, it's, he's getting hungry and he sees uh, a vision from God. He sees this sheet being lowered and it says, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And then a voice came to him a second time saying, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So right there we see God take away all the ceremonial law that that is abolished now. They can eat whatever food uh, is served. So that's what Paul tells them here. He tells them to eat whatever is in the market without raising question. And he, then he kind of follows that up, bolsters it with this idea from Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That God created everything good and it all belongs to him. Right? God created everything that is good. It all belongs to him. And furthermore, nothing, nothing can be irrevocably claimed by Satan. This is an important theological idea, right? That, that nothing can be irrevocably claimed by Satan. It all belongs to God. Even if Satan uses something that is created, it is not irrevocably his. Everything can be redeemed. So when believers go to the marketplace, they don't need to ask about the history of the meat. They don't need to check to see if it's been sacrificed to idols. They're simply buying meat and not because it's been sacrificed. They can do they can do so, and they shouldn't ask questions about it. Right? They don't need to get the history of the meat, right? which is, we're, we're big on that today for other reasons, right? not about the idol worship, but we don't know, is this meat organic? Is it grass-fed? Right? Was, was the cow happy? Did he have a good life? What was his name? Right? Those are the kind of questions we want to know today. Paul's saying you don't need to ask. You don't need to ask questions about was this sacrifice to an idol or not, because again, that meat carries no spiritual power when it's separated from that idea. Even if it had been sacrificed to an idol, it doesn't matter if you don't know that. If you don't know that, it does not matter. You can buy whatever, don't ask questions about it to try to find out. Because this has implications beyond just eating meat. Right? This, this tells us that you can buy products without worrying about who owned them previously or what they did with them that everything and every person can be redeemed. Right? This has implications for if you were to go buy a house. If you were to go buy a house, you don't need to find out like, hey, what, what, what kind of sins were committed in this house? Was any witchcraft done in this house? Who did they worship? Who, what was the religion of the people in this house? Right? The, this kind of goes to the whole idea of like a haunted house or something like that. Like there is no haunting. The, this, the, the meat's not haunted, a house is not haunted, a car is not haunted. None of these things carry this spiritual power on their own. It has to be imbued by the worshiper. So if you were to go buy a house and it happened to be owned previously by a witch and they had done tons of sacrifices and all kinds of spells and things in that house, if you don't know that and that's not why you're buying it, anything like that, you go there, it's not going to be a problem. You're not going to find out like, oh, well, there's... You know, that's scary movie stuff, but that's make-believe, right? That's not real, essentially, is what Paul is saying here. That doesn't carry that weight. But if you were like, oh, I want to buy this house because it was owned by, the, by a witch and she did all these magic spells in it and everything, there's a lot of good spiritual power here, then you're going to have a problem. That's what Paul is saying here. This, 
implication goes beyond because everything and every person can be redeemed. Now, he says there are some instructions for going to dinner, right? Because an unbeliever invites you to dinner. Whatever they set before you, you should eat it. Don't ask questions, just eat with gratitude. And this is a, a missiological imperative, right? He's talking about how we carry out mission. Going to, to an unbeliever's house for dinner, you should be going there with the mission of, I want to show them the love of Jesus. I want to tell them the truth about Jesus. And good missionaries follow this. They, if, you, if you go to the mission field and you get invited to somebody's house, you go eat whatever they eat, even if it is strange to you. Or you eat whatever they are, are meant to eat. It's also just, honestly, polite. Just to eat whatever is served to you. Right? But he is saying specifically for, this, for, for the sake of it, in this situation. And in Corinth, they would have this issue. right? They would be going somewhere. They'd be serving something. They don't know, is it sacrifice to idols or not? He says, don't ask questions, just eat it. If they don't tell you, just eat it. But if someone that tells you this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. If you've been informed, then don't eat it. What's the difference? Right, that's kind of an important question. What's the difference? If, they, if you tell us to eat it, don't ask questions. But if they tell you, now don't eat it, what has changed about the meat? Nothing. And the quality of the meat is the same. But the significance of the moment is different. That is what's changed. The relationship has changed things. Because why would they tell you? We can think of a couple reasons, right? One, maybe they're proud of it. Maybe they're saying like, hey, we're having steak tonight, and guess what? This was sacrificed to this idol. So not only are you getting the protein and the flavor, but you're also going to get some spiritual power. Right? They might be telling you for that reason, in which case you go, no, I, I'm not going to do that. I worship Jesus. And it, if I'm joining you in worshiping this idol, then I, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to eat that. They also might assume that you won't want to eat it because they know you're a believer and they're trying to be considerate. They might say, hey, just warning you, this has been sacrificed to idol. You probably, I know you're a Christian. I can, you probably don't want to eat it. Then don't eat it. Right? They also might be telling you to test you. Right? They might be, might be testing to see if you hold to your convictions. They might go like, hey, we got some really good uh, steak here. Like a, this has been sacrificed to an idol. What are you going to do? Right? In which case, again, the best thing to do is to abstain. They might be testing you. Or you might have someone who's a fellow believer. They're convicted of not, to not eat it, and they're warning you, and they're asking, essentially asking you to support them. In any case, Paul tells them that they should abstain for the sake of the one who informed you. They told you for a reason, and none of those reasons lead to eating being the right thing to do. He tells them to do it for the sake of conscience, for the sake of conscience. And again, it's for the conscience of the person who informed you, not your own conscience. And Paul follows that up by this really like powerful question of like, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? That's like, a, I mean, that fits right in with our culture, right? You could put an American flag on that and, and put that quote and, and sell it as a bumper sticker, right? That's, that's don't tread on me kind of stuff. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience, Right? But here's the, here's the interesting thing, right? Paul's saying, 
Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And then he's submitting to not eating it. He's saying, I have every freedom to eat this meat. I have every freedom to do this. This is my right. I have the right to do this. I'm not going to. Right? saying, I want to eat it. I have every right to eat it. My conscience is clear, but I'm not going to eat it for the sake of you. He's actively giving up his rights. That he is firmly established, I have this right, but he's going to surrender it for the sake of the, of the people that he is with out of a love for them. Paul's big on Christian liberty even when it's not exercised. Now that's the important thing is you can have these rights, you can have this freedom, you don't have to exercise it. And sometimes the most loving thing to do is to abstain from exercising your rights. It's also, I think, worth flipping this question around. Um, and this is for those of you who are self-righteous, judgmental. Anybody? No. <laughs> okay. But for those of you who are self-righteous and judgmental, it's worth flipping this question around is, why should someone else's liberty be determined by your conscience? Or it's worth flipping that around as well to go like, yeah, why should someone else's liberty be determined by your conscience? We would have a lot less uh, self-righteous, judgmental Christians if we thought like that. All right, we'll look at the last section here, verses 31 through 33. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Paul points out that everything that we do can be done to the glory of God, right? He tells them, Whatever you do, whether you're eating, whether you're drinking, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Because everything you do can bring glory to God. Right? How you love your family can bring glory to God. How you work can bring glory to God. How you interact with your community can bring glory to God. This is what Paul means when he encourages us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice in Romans chapter 12, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So I encourage you to offer yourself, offer your bodies as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice that everything you do, everything in your life is for him. That you don't have your God time and your personal time. It's all his. You give everything to him. So everything you do should be for his glory. Then he tells them, verse 32, to give no offense, right, to Jews, to Greeks, to the church of God. He's naming all the people. He says, whoever you interact with, don't offend them. We're commanded to be inoffensive. We should be able to get along with anyone, right? And then he says, I try to please everyone in everything I do. Kind of a shocking thing to find in the Bible, right? Especially, like, when I read this, I thought, like, oh, if Paul said this in our day, somebody would say to him, like, well, yeah, you have a problem. You're a people pleaser. Right? Isn't that funny that that's become, like, problematic? That that's considered, like, a problem. That you're like, yes, I'm a people pleaser. And then we go, like, oh, I'm so sorry. You can work on that. 
I try to please people. Oh, that's terrible. Why? Paul says, I try to please people in everything that I do. Now, I'm not dense. I understand that that can go too far, right? You can go too far and you can overextend yourself and you can compromise your convictions and all those kind of things. But I, I feel like we've kind of overcorrected that. We've overcorrected that to like, hey, I, I try to please everyone. Like, okay, well then try to please no one but yourself, right? Only care about you, only care about how you're feeling, only care about your, good, your, your, your welfare, right? Only care about you. That's kind of where our culture has gone. And Paul says, no, I try to please everyone. I try not to be offensive, right? That, that's something that, that, again, we've strayed from that idea in our culture where we go like, I don't care who I offend. I'm going to say what I want to say. I have a First Amendment right. I'm going to say whatever I want. I'm, I've got no filter, and people just have to deal with it, right? And I don't need to please anybody but me. That's where our culture has gone, and it's going great. Right, like, it's not, it's not going great. And Paul's saying, trying to be pleasing and inoffensive is a good thing. Now, it's a heck of a statement from Paul. Because I want to remind you that he also said this. Let's see if you can find the connection here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's talking about his own experiences and his personal history um, with people. And he's, he's kind of giving his own stats. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers and danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. To say, you weren't beaten that often, you weren't imprisoned that much, and you weren't run out of town or thrown overboard a ship that much if you don't offend some people. Right? Like, this is the guy who's like, I try to please everyone. I try to give no offense to anybody. And it's like, well, Paul, you're getting run out of town a lot. You offend, like, the whole town. And to where they're like, everybody picks up, he got stoned one time, meaning everybody in town picked up a, a rock and threw it at him. You were pretty offensive. But what Paul's saying here is like, he knows that he's going to preach the gospel. And he knows that that can be offensive. And so he doesn't want to offend anybody with anything else because he already knows he's going to offend them with the gospel. And he wants to have every opportunity he can have when he goes to present the gospel, that they would accept it. Because the gospel, make no mistake, is offensive, right? It starts off offensive, right? Like the, the beginning of the gospel, if you want to accept the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, the first thing you have to tell somebody is you aren't good enough, right? You are not good. Like everything you've tried to do in life to like, be successful enough and have people think well of you and, and do good for others and, and try not to do bad things and all of that, all of that, all of your effort is worthless. That's like step, that's a tough introduction. 
It's a tough thing to like start off with. Like, hey, you know, like, you know how you're not good enough, right? Right? Like, that's a hard thing for some people to admit. And some people get very offended when you say that to the extent that they want to run you out of town and beat you with sticks and all kinds of things. Right? That's step one. And then step two is the answer to that deficiency, if you've accepted that, is only Jesus. Nothing else counts. Nothing else counts. Only Jesus is the only way for you to have righteousness, for you to, to fix the problem that you have in your deficiency. So again, both of those things are offensive to a lot of people, and that's why Paul got run out of town so much. But again, Paul is thinking missiologically. He says, I do this that they may be saved, right? His, his motivation in all of this is missiological. He wants them to be saved. He's modeling and instructing these things as a means of reaching the lost. He's not looking for his own advantage. His desire is to bring the gospel to those who are perishing. And he wants to have every advantage he can when he presents the gospel. So his basic instruction in all of this is stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about yourself. When it comes to eating meat sacrificed to idols, don't think about yourself. Whether or not you eat meat should not be your primary focus. Or the questions they should be asking are, is this going to hurt my brothers or sisters in Christ? Is this going to bring glory to God? And is this going to help me reach the lost? Because it's not about you. It's about him. It's about God and his mission, his glory, what he wants for us first and foremost I'll wrap up with this, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, do everything for the glory of God. Right? Consider how does everything that I do bring glory to God. Number two, seek the good of others before your own. Right? Seek the good of other people before your own good. And then lastly, I want to bring, back, uh, bring back up this idea of having a pray and watch list. Because right? I think this is all crucial. Paul is so focused on the mission, right? They, they bring him this dispute about eating meat sacrificed to idols, and he just points it back to Jesus. Right? He's like, stop thinking about yourselves. Stop thinking about your stomachs. Think about him, and how does this affect the mission that we have? How does this affect what we're doing for God? How do we take the, the focus off of ourselves and put it onto him? And so we need to be focused on that mission. How do we take the gospel to the world? One of the, the helpful things that we've introduced is this idea of having a pray and watch list. And so this is, if you, if you don't have one yet, is a pretty simple idea. It's you kind of write out a list of people that you know who need to know Jesus. You write out that list, people that you know. It could be family members, it could be friends, it could be coworkers, it could be neighbors. People that are in your life that you interact with that need to know Jesus. And then you pray for them regularly and you watch and see how is God working in their lives and you watch and see when should I speak? When can I serve? When can I show them the love of Jesus and how can I speak into their lives to tell them the truth about Jesus? So if you don't currently have one, I encourage you to, to have one. Um, and, and that's something that our, our community groups are doing. If you're interested in getting involved in a community group, I'd love to plug you in, just let me know, um, and, and we can get you plugged in. Now, in a second here, we're going to take communion together. 
and then um, we'll sing one final song. After that, we'll have a, a prayer group, prayer team that's available. If you'd like prayer for anything, they'll be right over here. They'd love to pray for you. Just come on up. All right, would you bow with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we can come together in your name and, uh, and read about this uh, obscure topic of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And I thank you that we can find so much truth in it that is applied to our lives today, that, that applies to how we live. And I pray that we would put you first in everything, that we would live for your glory and not our own. We would consider how you would use us for the good of your kingdom. I pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.